When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am thrilled to welcome back to the program Michael Mohammed Knight. Michael Mohammed Knight is Associate Professor of Religion and Cultural Studies at the University of Central Florida. He is the author of numerous books, including Muhammad's Body and Metaphysical Africa, which was our last interview. Today, we're talking about his new book, Sufi Deleuze, Secretions of Islamic Atheism, published in 2023 by Fordham University Press. Professor Knight, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's um, it's great to uh, to clean up. I think I clean up well. Uh, it's been a weird couple of weeks uh, on Twitter world, and uh, maybe not my, my best representation <laughs> working on there. <laughs> So I am here as a, a pure academic to talk pure academic things with with all you know academic adub and proper footnotes and diacritics and all of it. Well, maybe you could give listeners a little bit of a taste of what you're talking about. I mean, we're recording this on June fifteenth of twenty twenty three for future listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, I think it was two weeks ago that, however many. Um, Muslim thought leaders by their own appointment released a uh, public statement affirming their right to homophobia without consequences. And on Twitter, there there actually were a lot of consequences because a lot of people were very dissatisfied with that statement and very hurt by it. And I was one of those people who was very hurt. Not, I don't know that I expected more from them, but uh, still, you know, Got involved in some of those conversations, and you know, was was called a zindik and a kafir and all that enough times, but um, you know, you know, sometimes after like the the thirtieth or so person calling you a heretic, you know, you kind of lose patience for having that conversation. So, um, that that's maybe that's when it got fun. Yeah, right. But yeah, but I'm 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 here as a as a responsible scholar with responsible <laughs> scholarship about Islamic atheism. <laughs> you know, because someone someone said, uh, "Oh, there can be queer Islam. What what's next? Islamic atheism?" And you know, as a matter of fact, here's a book. As a matter of fact, here's a book about atheism and Deleuze. <laughs> so maybe we could get into that. What what inspired this book, Professor Knight? So at one point, uh, you know, when I was interviewing for a job after finishing my dissertation, 
one of the questions I was asked was uh, what what your next thing is that you're working on. This is around 2016. And, you know, I, I had some ideas. I don't think I actually wrote any of that stuff that I floated as a possibility. But one of the things that my interviewer said was, you know, the advice that they got was your book after your dissertation is the book that would have made your dissertation easier if it already existed. And, you know, Deleuze was a big part. Deleuze was a big part of my dissertation. And um, there really wasn't an Islam and Deleuze conversation already, at least not the one that I wanted. So to backtrack a little bit, you know, my, my dissertation was about Muhammad's body. And I was asking questions about Muhammad's body through a Deleuzean lens. Uh, you know, asking not what the body is, but what can the body do? What are the ways in which this body uh, can combine forces with other bodies, you know, combine their powers, forge linkages, and, you know, kind of ex expand the territory of this body. And so I was thinking about Muhammad's body as something that did that, you know, sometimes through bodily fluids. Sometimes he spits in someone's eye and that transmits baraka to them. Uh, speaking of connecting this to the the letter, in the process of writing that dissertation, I had this very weird experience. Uh, I spent a weekend in Calgary. I, I feel weird admitting that I did this. It's very strange. It is very strange that I did this. Uh, it, it was a great weekend. It makes no sense to me now, but um, I was doing my dissertation at UNC. I love my mentors there. I benefited greatly from my mentors there. It was very, you know, theory. It's a theory place. So it's like I just learned Abdullah's walking down the hallway, basically, and hanging out with like the real theory people. I'm not really a really a real theory person, but um, there wasn't anyone in the triangle area that specialized spe really in Hadith, right? So I, I want to do a, a dissertation on Hadith. That's not really the wheelhouse of any of my mentors. Uh, and I found out about this weekend seminar, <clears throat> found out about this weekend seminar, in Calgary, led by Yasser Qadi. And so I register for this weekend seminar and I go spend a weekend. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Yasser Qadi's not, I, I know his credentials, but he's not an academic in the study of religion in the way that I was aspiring to be. Uh, so I, I wasn't expecting to learn any kind of critical theoretical insights from him, but he's someone who probably knows a lot of stuff and I'll just listen to somebody who knows a lot of stuff, talk about the stuff that they know for a weekend. And I, I go there and uh, made it through the first lecture and then spent the rest of the weekend kind of walking around Calgary, like just walking. I just walked around. Cal I, I don't know anybody in Calgary. I don't have any connections to Calgary. Just walking around. I walked to Owen Hart's grave, which was an extraordinary trek from the camp, the university campus where this was all going on. Um I, I really uh, did not derive a ton of benefit from from the seminar, but there there was this moment um, in in that opening lecture. I think it was the opening. Maybe I went to more than one, but uh, Yasser Qadi is talking about this scholar who had a dream in which he drank the Prophet's sweat, and I could tell everyone in the room's icked out by this. And and Yasser Qadi's like, you know, but this is Baraka to drink the Prophet's sweat, and. There was another point in the in the weekend. Yasser Qadi's talking about this the, the hadith of intention, where you know you're rewarded by your intention, right? So he has an ijazah for that hadith. So like he has an is a living isnad, 
a living chain of transmission where you hear it from a teacher who heard it from a teacher all the way back to Bukhari and then from Bukhari to the prophet. Um, and him and his TAs would hear you recite that hadith and you would have the ajaza to teach that hadith. Any version of it. It could be the shortest possible version of it. And they, you would get the ajaza for it. And he presented this as you have this embodied link to the prophet. You know, like he was the embodied link. It's him. It's Yasser Qadi is the body in the room that connects you to the body of the prophet through all these different face-to-face -face encounters through the centuries. And I'm like, well, you're giving me some anecdotes for my dissertation, you know? So I, I got something out of it. And, and really like to be reading Deleuze and hearing things like that, um, I think did contribute to the project. So, so anyway, uh, you know, I had this Deleuzean dissertation that became the book Muhammad's body. And Sometimes, you know, you, you're, just, you're just eating so much of something and you just got to vomit it up to like have your next meal. I don't know. That's, that sounds terrible. I don't get that. I really, because it, it felt like I'm vomiting up. You know, I'm, I'm not articulating that correctly, but um, I just had, I just had eaten a lot of Deleuze. I just had yeah. eaten, you know, I, I apologize for the way that came out, but um I needed to be done with with the list. I was I was getting into them a lot, and I was I was writing with no real. I was I was writing with no real project exactly. I was just doing this Deleuzean stuff, and I proposed a paper for a Deleuze camp conference in Delhi, and and these were these amazing pre-pandemic things. These Deleuze camp conferences. There was one in Delhi. There was one in Prague that got canceled because of the pandemic. There was one in China that got canceled because of the pandemic. But it was like. All over the world, you have these like six-day Deleuze camp conferences, camp slash conferences, and you can do both the camp and the conference or one or the other. I did both in Delhi. So the camp, Deleuze camp, I went to Deleuze camp, you know, and at Deleuze camp, it's like three days of just constant lectures from leading Deleuze scholars. And uh, then you do the conference. And like I got into this by presenting, by pitching a paper and getting the paper. And so one of the papers became a chapter in the book. You know, the one on genital Bucky, um, you know, that I, I'd written a paper about genital Bucky reading that through, through Deleuze. And, uh, you know, I, the weekend or that, that six day camp conference was this extraordinary experience where, you know, first, like I said, I'm, I'm listening to all these great lectures on Deleuze and then I'm hearing papers and presenting a paper on Deleuze. And when I'm off campus, uh, you know, I, I'm going to all the Sufi shrines in Delhi you know, and just there, there was this uh, intersection of the Deleuzean content with the stuff that I was doing at the shrines, and thinking about you know the the kind of imminent energy circulating around the shrines that for me did not need theology. You know, I don't think of myself as a theologian or someone who really does theology, but like I didn't need theology for those shrines to do what they said they were doing. You know, there were these circulations of baraka around these shrines, and. I was thinking about Islamic atheism. It wasn't atheism in the sense of this over rejection of any kind of theistic commitment, but just it was all on the ground. You know, it, it was it was all on the ground. And in that six days, I think I wrote like twenty thousand words that became part of the book. You know, just like like going to the shrines, going to the conferences, going to the camp, and then just sitting in my room. You know, like I'm not someone who like goes wherever all these people were going after the lectures were done, I wasn't going there. I was going to my room and just sitting in my room, 
uh, with the PDFs that I brought and the notes that I'd taken and the notes that I wrote at the shrines and the memories of the Q and A's and and all this, just all of it, just circulating in, in my head and just writing and writing and writing and writing and um, writing half a book before I got back on the plane, more or less. And um, yeah, so so that that's how that happened. Uh, in in the course of my like, like, how did I get into doulas? First of all, like I said, I, I did my my graduate work in Islamic studies at a very theoretical, very theory heavy place. I wasn't one of the the theory people there exactly, uh, but it was always there. It was always just in the air, you know. And Deleuze was one of those people who was just you you just couldn't walk down the hall without hearing Deleuze's name. And you know, I was talking to you know a serious scholar of Deleuze in those hallways, and he really presented Deleuze as more of like an art project than a system. You know, I don't I don't really do philosophy. Uh, I I didn't want to think about Deleuze and Islam or about Islamic atheism or putting Deleuze's atheism in conversation with Islam in a sense of, can I wrestle this atheist into a kind of theism? Or can I find some way of reading Islamic theism in a way that would satisfy this atheist? I, I really wasn't interested in that. Um, but but I, I was interested in you know what kind of art projects can I do with this philosopher and uh, you know it, it was generative it was I, I got a lot out of it so um yeah I I just vomited up to Liz and and then finger painted with the vomit <laughs> that's what I was going this for. yeah this metaphor is getting even better yeah. <laughs> you're you're not a theory guy you're not a philosophy person you're not a you're not a theology person also my arabic's the shits too <laughs> so i got none of it i got none of it <laughs> and, and nevertheless you have this book that's theory philosophy uh theology you're reading arabic Here, here's the here's the trick um if you're not really a theory person and you're also not one of these like nelk people who just mm-hmm. invent their whole graduate experience translating things. You know, I'm neither I'm not neither someone who just does theory for theory's sake, and I'm not a translator, really, really. You know, Nelk um, being Near Eastern languages and cultures. Eastern, yeah, you, know, uh, you can be theory enough that in a room of Nelk people, you come across as a real theory person, and you can get enough Arabic that when you're in the theory room, you're like, oh man, oh this this person is doing like very textualist kind of things, and they have diacritical marks on there you know um so you know you, you do you do enough so that you go into a room where nobody does that and then you're the person who, who does that so right that, that that's that's the work and so then what readership did you have in mind for this book <laughs> um okay so so there, there were two there were two readerships that i was really thinking about uh one the fun and really, really nourishing and less, you know, the the fun part for me was to think about it as Islamic experimentalism, you know, that, that I'm taking some interesting ingredients, ingredients that are kind of unique to me, you know, I don't see my particular collection of ingredients anywhere else, and, and stirring them up and seeing what happens. And there's a certain explorer, seeker, wanderer, who gets into stuff like that 
who who gets into these weird mixtures of ingredients and and I thought it would be compelling you know the the suggestion of Islam secreting a kind of atheism from within um and 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 bringing this particular thinker into conversation with Islamic archives and and Deleuze honestly didn't know anything about Islam and kind of sounds goofy whenever he tries to talk about Islam uh, so I was really doing some lifting for him in, in the way I thought about it. Uh, you know, I, I thought about a Muslim readership, you know, at first that, that might enjoy something like this. And, and I have, I've actually gotten some of that feedback from, from Muslim readers who are in, into, uh, the Deleuzean stuff. Uh, the second, you know, is my contribution to the field is there is a, a Deleuze and religion conversation. And in the academic and in Deleuze studies as a field, it's really a Deleuze and theology conversation, really a Deleuze and Christian theology conversation, and and then beyond that, Deleuze and elite Western Christian theologians kind of conversation. And so, it's it's real easy to be the grumpy Islamic studies person in the back of the room saying, "Well, what about all the stuff that I find compelling and, and the stuff that I could bring to this conversation that none of you know exists?" So, and, and including Deleuze himself, right? So, uh, I wanted to make an intervention in that conversation to say that Islamic studies has things to say here. Islamic studies has interesting resources here for this conversation about imminence and transcendence and secretions of atheism from within a religion. Uh, so, so that that was, uh, you know, my my second readership that I was envisioning was was people who were interested in the Deleuze and religion conversation, and also, like I said, it's it's typically theology. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm not I'm not trying to see if you can make Deleuze, if you if, if you can make a faith that would satisfy Deleuze, or if you can make Deleuze work for your faith. Like I'm that, that's not that's not what I'm trying to do. But I think that. Uh, Deleuze has other places where he can talk about religion in interesting ways. So, so that there were those two kind of readerships that I imagined. And you just mentioned two two keywords in Deleuzean philosophy that I thought would be really nice for readers before we get into uh, chapter four, which we're going to talk about a little bit more. What what do you mean by imminence and transcendence? So th- this is the uh, the definitive Deleuzean problem of religion. And uh, transcendence, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a God who speaks from outside the world, and we're talking about vertical hierarchy, we're talking about authoritarianism, we're talking about territoriality and re-territorializing um, versus imminence where the power is here on the ground, you know, and, and Deleuze as an atheist favors imminence, you know, and Deleuze's valorization of imminence as representing multiplicity, as representing creativity, as representing, um, I don't want to say like a, like a pre-orthodoxy or a non-orthodoxy versus transcendence, which, you know, represents a very vertical, very hierarchical, very ordered authoritarian tree model of being, you know, um, and, and and trying to to bring those two things into harmony with each other in some way or into conversation with each other in some way. For me, you know, when I was in Delhi and I was going to the shrines, I was experiencing I don't I don't know if theology is the word, but some kind of theology of of imminence because I was experiencing this thing that we call baraka that was real. It was this energy, it was this force that we 
presumed to be of some divine origin. Um, but I, I wasn't experiencing it as this dispensing from above. You know, it was it was circulating on the ground. And this goes back again to my my dissertation about the prophet, where like the prophet is this baraka broadcaster, you know, like there's this baraka coming out of his body that connects other bodies to each other and becomes this baraka generating circulating grid. Um, so, so I was, I was interested in, in articulating that experience of being Muslim, uh, through a Deleuzian set of reference points. Yeah. Yeah. Could you maybe then explain like, what is baraka? How does baraka manifest in the world and maybe relate it also now to, uh, to shrine visitation specifically? So baraka loosely gets translated as blessings, popularly gets treated as blessings. People have um, <clears throat> not necessarily rejected that that translation, but complicated it. You know, that depending on what we mean by blessings, do we think about blessings as this set of credits, the set of currency that God just kind of hands down to you uh, versus this idea of baraka as this imminent force, not this transcendent circulation, this transcendent distribution, but something that floats among us, circulates between us, flows between us, uh, connects us to each other. And so I thought, you know, leaving aside the question of theism, you know, whether we can make Deleuze believe in God or not, I thought that this, this imminent circulation of Baraka, um, kind of suspended the God question kind of took people are gonna be horrified. <laughs> it kind of takes God out of the equation for a little bit, um, or, or the, the questions of theology and just lets us have the baraka, you know, and it lets us have the baraka in these very decentralized ways. Because if I believe that these beneficent energies circulate at these particular sites, at these Sufi shrines, that's a particular relation to the tradition. Uh, and it's, it's, in Deleuzean terms, a line of flight outside some structures of the tradition. Because I can go, there's stories even of non-Muslims benefiting from like the, the baraka that they encounter at these shrines, that these shrines do things for them, you know? Um, whereas if, if I believe that baraka is strictly a credit or a point that I receive out of, you know, for my obedience, then... I need a set of qualified experts to tell me, I need professional expert scholars to tell me how to get those credits, how to get those points, right? So there are these two different models of, of thinking about Baraka. One centers transcendence and this very vertical trickle, I have this term I've been using lately, trickle down monotheism, mm. you know, or circulating the letter and telling you that the whole tradition is in agreement against you and et cetera, et cetera. Um, trickle down monotheism. It's kind of, if you think of uh, Amanu Adud's Tawhidic paradigm, how Amanu Adud envisions Tawhid and what that's supposed to look like on the ground, trickle-down monotheism is what I envision Wadud is arguing against. You know, when, when, when Wadud is saying Tawhidic paradigm is this, not this over here, trickle-down monotheism is this transcendent model of, well, yes, you know, there's God up here, God handed it directly to the prophet, the prophet handed it directly to this class of professional clerical experts, and they will prescribe for you what these transcendent agents outside the world want you to do. Um, so yeah, so, so, if, so I, if I believe that Baraka is accessible to me outside the prescriptions of those 
trained professional experts and I have a line of flight out of the prison. And sometimes the line of flight leads back into the prison, which, which it does. And sometimes that's actually okay. And sometimes that momentary escape from the, the system actually enables my survival in it. You know, in my, uh, in my book, Why I'm a Selfie, I write about um, this, this ayahuasca vision. It was actually the end of another book. Uh, but, you know, I start this book with that vision leading me back to the masjid. You know, the, the line of flight that the ayahuasca vision enabled to, to get me out of the structure, circled back around and led me into the structure again. So yeah, so there's two different models of Baraka with, with very different social consequences. And that's why these imminent models of Baraka are so threatening. And that's why shrines and tombs and these these places where people go to get Baraka are, are getting bulldozed by the people who prescribe Baraka as obedience to a system of texts as mediated by the special class of trained experts whose whole job and livelihood is their representation of the transcendent. You know, there's a point in the introduction where you really break down the term orthodoxy. And using this metaphor of prison, I think, is really beautiful here. What, what does orthodoxy mean in this, in this context? Well, there, there's also the context of the past two weeks where I've been told I'm not orthodox many, 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 many times on social media. There's this Deleuzian line that the appearance of unity, I may be messing it up, the appearance of unity is a power takeover in the multiplicity. I, I'm, I'm coming around to maybe thinking about orthodoxy as an actual thing. You know, in, in grad school, we're really like trained against saying that word because we, 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 we so often use the word in this very like, well, Islamic orthodoxy says that, and then it kind of ignores the fact that orthodoxy is a social construction like race or gender or anything else. And it's fluid and changes and is historically specific. So there's lots of different orthodoxies. Um, the orthodoxy that I'm, I'm personally struggling with or using Deleuze as a tool for working on is, um, you know, the the articulation of, of the tradition that has the most power and privilege, right? And when your vision has the most power and privilege, you can make that power and privilege appear natural. The same way that rhetorics of gender work, same way that rhetorics of, of race work, that we have this present condition of some voices being more powerful and privileged than the others, and the powerful and privileged can make it appear that this is just naturally and inevitably the way things were supposed to be. Uh, so yeah, so that, that's that's the line of flight. I'm seeking a line of flight out of that, you know? And that that's the um that's that's the threat of these these baraka circulating sites and these baraka circulating practices, you know, is it they they offer a way out. And it's not that they're always absolutely opposed to each other because in a different time and place the shrines are orthodoxy, the shrines are the establishment, the shrines are the powerful and privileged voice. You know, I mean the Aban Empire made those tombs, you know, that that are getting bulldozed, right? Like they they were imperial artifacts. Um you know, every, every deterritorialization could be a re-territorialization somewhere else. And that's, you know, that, that that's the reality. But um, I'm only working within my own my own moment. Yeah, speaking of Ottoman shrines, now we can really get into the meat of chapter four. <laughs> what is Janatul Bakli? So, so Janatul Bakli is a cemetery in Medina and is home to so many 
luminaries of, of early history. So it's, you know, Aisha is supposed to be there and a number of the Shia Imams are there. Fatima is believed to be there. And, uh, Malik, the, the jurist of the, the Maliki Madhab is there and Osman is there. I don't, I'm not really interested in Osman being there, but you know, there's a lot of people there that I'm, <laughs> um, the prophet's infant son is there apparently. So that there's, there's a lot of, um, really significant figures from early Islamic history that are there. And historically, this was a site of, of shrines and, and, and domed tombs, you know, and, and people would make pilgrimage to these sites and these sites were locations of Baraka. And in the 1920s, the, the Saudis in the interest of their particular revivalism project demolished the whole thing and they flattened it out. And now it's just it's just a brown field with nothing marked except the the way you know people who's where is the imams are fenced off so no one can get near them so you know the imams are over there and there is a sign telling you where Uthman's grave is because Uthman is still Uthman you know um, but but they flatten it out and they flatten it out in the name of you know this very textualist very um, you know, to use the pejorative Wahhabi idea of authenticity and authority. And, you know, if you believed that these shrines were possible sites of Baraka, then you don't need Saudi. You don't need their, their whole apparatus of scholars and authorities. And you also don't need necessarily their sites because a lot of these sites around the world developed partly in response to the fact that people couldn't go to Mecca. Most, most Muslims historically could not go to Mecca. So you have these local sites where it's like, okay, if you go down the street and go to that place seven times, that counts as Hajj. You know, we have that kind of narrative throughout the quote unquote Muslim world. Um, so we have we have this this local distribution of baraka, these local baraka distribution centers, where you can go and experience something like what you would experience in in a, in a place like like standing in front of the the Kaaba, and you know the modern Saudi state wants to be the center of the Ummah, the heartland, this singular site of authority and authenticity. And so they have, they have a rhetoric, they have a discourse that, um, you know, justifies them bulldozing their own stuff to build hotels and whatever, but not only just bulldozing their own stuff, but telling everyone else around the world to bulldoze the things that they have historically cared for as well. So a, a re-territorializing of, of, of the map. Yeah, can you maybe explain these Deleuzian concepts you're using of territorialization, deterritorialization, re-territorialization? Uh, yeah, so territorialization and deterritorialization relates to Deleuze's concept of the assemblage, and the assemblage is probably one of the more famous aspects of Deleuze's thought. Uh, it's something that the use of, of assemblage and attempts at assemblage theory just gets so proliferated that calling something an assemblage is kind of almost meaningless uh, at this point. It's kind of saying it's a thing made of stuff, you know? Um, and, and and there's actually been some pushback against that. So Ian Buchanan, for example, leading, leading top, top Deleuze scholar wrote a book on assemblage theory recently that kind of tells everyone how they're re doing Deleuze wrong, which might actually be useful for someone like me because I'm not someone who's living the Deleuze life all the time. Uh, so it's great to be in conversation with people who are, but 
there's also a kind of ironic anti-Deleuzeanism about it to me because I, I came up treating Deleuze like an art project and don't tell me how to use these colors. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get it. Like I get it. And everybody's a selfie about something. So, you know, we have, we have Deleuzean selfism as, as ironic as that may sound. But anyway, it's oh, a beautiful quote. Everybody's a selfie about something that needs are. to be, yeah. that needs to be a title of yeah. something. I mean, we, you know, uh, but, but, to say that the assemblage is just, you know, a thing made of stuff, it, that's obviously an oversimplification of it. And, and Ian Buchanan would rightfully take me to, to task for that. But I, I would say that if, if we start there, that an assemblage is a thing made of stuff. And, and Deleuze is very interested in, in how things are made of stuff. And not only how the, this thing we're calling the assemblage consists of the stuff itself, so if the assemblage is genital lucky, you know, we have the stuff, which is the bodies and the stones and the dirt and the the perimeter and and all all the physical material things, but also the ways that words and concepts act upon that stuff. Right? So we have different discourses. We have the the Ottoman imperial edifice with its words and its concepts acting upon these bodies, making these bodies into something, re-territorializing them into something. Um and then we have the Wahhabi demolition of that, which Deleuze would call a negative deterritorialization, but also achieves a kind of re-territorialization itself, right? Um, this re-territorializing or deterritorializing reflects the ways in which authority becomes intensified in the assemblage. Movement is restricted. Movement is limited. Uh, creativity is, is limited. The lines of flight are sealed off. So if the shrines offer these lines of flight, not necessarily antagonistic to legal tradition or, or classical orthodoxy or what have you, um, but moments of relief from it, the destruction of those tombs sealed off the line of flight. It closed that tunnel. You know, so that was a negative deterritorialization that became a an authoritarian, arborescent re-territorialization. And again, like Deleuze will say there's some of this and that every tree has a rhizomatic aspect and every rhizome has an arborescent aspect. So there, again, there, there are ways in which something is as authoritarian as, you know, our, our image of the, the Wahhabi state can have these, these momentary lines of flight. Um, the reverse is true also that, that the rhizome can become a tree, you know, it, it's, it's contextual, you know, it's, it's specific, but um, yeah, in, in our, in our present, world i was i was interested in the ways that um these processes were were, were clear re-territorializing right they were restricting they were restricting movement they were cutting off these these lines of flight i have one final question for you which is a tradition on the new books network and that is what are you working on now so i have a couple books that are that are done and just in that post-revision production mode. One is Who is Muhammad, which is coming out with UNC Press. And that's basically just who is Muhammad. You know, uh, I think the way that the field goes every 10 years or so, you need another one of those books, you know, just kind of update where things are. And um, it's certainly my own take on that. You know, it's so it's a state of the field plus me being a weirdo doing it the way that I would do it. Uh, the other book is coming out. So that's, that's the University of North Carolina Press. The other book is with Equinox, which is um, going to be the Supreme Wisdom Lessons. So 
this is the the crucial catechism initiatic text of the nation of islam and the five percenters and i've spent a lot of time with that text uh, looking not only at the world in which that text emerged so i'm looking very closely at master farad muhammad's life that the very you know bare facts of his life that, that we have but I'm, I'm bringing some new things to light i'm talking about the impact that san quentin's pedagogical practices had on on the lessons i'm tracking change within the lessons themselves i'm finding points in the lessons where i can make a pretty confident argument that elijah muhammad actually instituted changes to the lessons uh, i'm taking on some of the past scholarship on the lessons and talking about the lessons as an interpretive tradition looking at the ways that warathi and muhammad for example who did not simply just flip a switch and make everyone orthodox you know in a second but actually used the lessons in a very creative way uh to make his argument so so those are the two projects that are done uh and i think my my other project that's it's crystallizing right now and it's you know very far from that production moment is is queer islam mm -hmm. uh, i think recent conversations have, have kind of sped up processes that were already happening with me intellectually creatively and uh it might just be time to just really go for it. You know, it's something that's been bubbling up for a long time. And, uh, I think, I think it's, um, becoming even, even more urgent than it already was for me. So, so that, 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 that's, there's nothing signed. There's no contract for that one, but, um, I work fast. For sure. For sure. <laughs> and professor Knight, of course, I look forward to inviting you once more on the podcast. That would be awesome. Thank you so much. The book is Sufi Deleuze, published in 2023 with Fordham University Press. Michael Mohammed Knight, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.